Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another wonderful session of The Learning Curve. This is where we come together to talk about education, life, and society. And of course, none of this could be done with any brilliance, any fluidity, or any interest if I didn't have Kara. So how are you? Well, how are you today, my friend? I am doing well after having spent a great two and a half days with a lot of people we know in Milwaukee. We were all there to celebrate the 30th anniversary. I know. I'm so jealous. You know, I was supposed to be there and couldn't be, but I had a lot of FOMO. I'll tell you. Tell us, how was it? What was it like? Who did you see? What did you do? Well, many of our listeners may not know, but 17 years ago last month, I actually moved from Charlottesville to Milwaukee to participate in a two-year fellowship with Dr. Fuller at the Institute for the Transformation of Learning at Marquette University. And he invited me uh, based in part on a book chapter that he read that I wrote about choice. And two is because he said the future of American urban education is housed in Milwaukee. And he said, if you want to know what the next 50 years are going to look like, come and spend two years with us. So I did and happened to be there when Milwaukee had reached its cap in terms of 15,000 students being in the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, also known as the Voucher Program, and played a role in helping push the uh, Lift the Cap campaign, which opened the doors to more students and families and schools. So we were there, had a chance to see him. In fact, they had a, a birthday cake to celebrate his 80th birthday. Wow. So we were glad to be you there. You wouldn't know it. You wouldn't no, know it. He's, I want to look that good when I'm 60, letting on 80, <laughs> and I've got you know, another 30 years to go for that. But it was good to see him and Tommy Thompson, governor at the time yeah. in Wisconsin, later secretary of uh, Health and Human Services, Susan Mitchell, who was the leader of School Choice Wisconsin. But we also had Jeannie Allen and Rob Enlow and Patrick Wolf and Jay Green and just, you know, uh, Catherine uh, Healy and others. So it was about 200 plus people there, but it was just really good to celebrate 30 years and to remember that 30 years ago, really 32 in terms of planning, it was an African-American lawmaker named Polly Williams, who was a Democrat, who was a progressive, who at one point supported Jesse Jackson's campaign for office, who crossed the aisle to work with Tommy Thompson, an outstate Republican, and said, we've got to do something for Milwaukee. And people laughed mm-hmm. and said it wouldn't work and it's going to destroy public schools and all the stuff we hear, even about charter schools. But 30 years later, we have students who've entered the middle class ranks because of this program. And it was just good to be reminded that there were people who made personal, professional, and financial sacrifices to make what we now have today, which are 25 voucher programs, 22 tax credit programs, six ESAs, two independent type tax credit programs in place, including places like Florida, that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Milwaukee. So it's good to go back to the well and remember. And also remembering a time, Gerard, when people actually did cross the aisle. Do do you remember that? I remember that. It was was in our lifetime. People would cross the aisle because I think they would actually, and they were actually like friendly to one another. They didn't kill one another on social media, among other. I mean, that to me, there are two things about remembering. I mean, 
I came to this work later in my life than you did, right? But two things. One is that, you know, it was by, I mean, even No Child Left Behind, right? Remember, bipartisanship. Yep. It, it was yep. a thing. It was a thing that used to happen in this country. And it certainly happened with the birth of school choice in Milwaukee and Cleveland and other places. But also what I love about the story that you're telling, and I think I'm sure the AFC gathering highlighted this, is there are so many misconceptions, and there are various reasons for that, about why school choice began and who supported it and what. And, and to understand that this was really coming from folks like Dr. Fuller, like Polly Williams, Black people who were supporting change for Black families, who were looking for greater opportunities. I think that that's a really important and powerful message that so many Americans would be surprised to learn if they took the time to actually learn and, and to listen. So I'm glad you got to go. I'm sad that I missed. And I know that you spent time with some close friends of mine, too, with the great Tim Abram and Tommy Schultz was there, folks that we've had on this podcast um, mm -hmm. and others. So really, really good times, Gerard. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. <laughs> it's you know so funny you mentioned about the confusion and controversy about choice because my article of the week is actually from a professor named John Hale who just wrote a book where he features Dr. Fuller in it. And it's from the nine, uh, September 27th edition of Conversation. And the title is How Civil Rights Activist Howard Fuller Became a Devout Champion of School Choice. And we think that if you support school choice, you're either conservative or if you happen to be a progressive or a Democrat, then you're a sellout, or somehow you were duped by funders. And Dr. Right. Ford was none of those. You know, he was involved in this work during the civil rights movement and all the things that you mentioned. But I'm glad you talked about bipartisanship because we wouldn't have a charter school movement today if it weren't for Senator at that time, uh, Ember Young in Minnesota making. Minnesota, the first state with a charter, and it wouldn't be a Polly Williams also in the Midwest doing work. And we forget the role, the role that women played, including people like Jeanette Mitchell, who worked at the Bader yeah. Foundation, who was one of the early funders of this. So it's just a good time to remember. Yeah, I imagine it's a great time to remember. And I'm sure, too, that there was a lot of hope there. So um, anything more you want to tell us about your story of the week, Gerard, or do you want to go? Mine is unrelated. Mine takes sort of a hard turn back to the market. <laughs> no, just to say, because, you know, we are supported by philanthropy, it was good to see Jim Blue, who uh, made, he was working at the Walter Family Foundation at the time, now as another foundation, but was an early investor in this work. People like John Kirtley in Florida, but also to remember John Walton and the role that he yeah. played early in the game in getting his peer group, people who you and I don't have access to because we're not billionaires or millionaires, or maybe you are and still know about it, but he was able to utilize <laughs> his... <working> <laughs> He was able to utilize his network of wealthy people who thought that the wealth of the nation would be served well by helping and investing in people who we often forget about. So just want to give a shout out to the role that philanthropists have played in this work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, which actually does provide a bit of a... And, and including the Current Family Foundation. Uh, Kern Family Foundation doing great work. And philanthropists like Kern and Walton, I think, for, well, first of all, Walton, one of the things I often hear from folks who just make assumptions about the ed space and make assumptions about education funding and perhaps spend a little bit too much time reading Diane Ravitch's books, although I do hope she'll come on the show at some point, is that, you know, that Walton <laughs> Family Foundation is somehow just this, they're only interested in radical right causes and stuff like that. And I want to, I was actually thinking to myself today, driving as 
I live in Boston, so I guess I have to listen to a lot of NPR, listening to NPR and noting that they too, so many people think they're left of center, but funded by the Walton Family Foundation, which also funds private school choice, which so many people think is right of center. And neither really have to be, neither are. But I long for that time of bipartisanship, Gerard. I gotta tell you, I'm getting tired. I want to take you, though, to my story of the week, which has relationship to this talk of funding because it talks about COVID learning loss. Of course, we're still talking about COVID learning loss, but something that only the federal government has put tons of money into, and we're still trying to figure out how states and districts are spending it, just a flag there, but also um, that a lot of philanthropists are thinking about. And I chose this story today, Gerard, because my four-year-old was home from school because in this time, as I was talking to Jamie and Michaela, our producers, about before we got on, a runny nose warns staying home from school, right? And in this case, mainly because my poor guy was so uncomfortable in his mask, he told me, Mama, please don't make me, don't make me wear a mask for eight hours with all this stuff coming out of my nose. So here I am at home trying to work with kiddo and reminded of those. For me, it was only a short window of time, but reminded Gerard mainly of what an incompetent teacher I am because I spent a little while with kiddo doing letters and numbers, but most of his day was spent with that great teacher called Hey Google while he watched probably, you know, cartoons that may or may not have been appropriate because that's, that's about the extent of my parenting today. But the story raises this story of the week brings to light research that shows that it's actually these little kiddos it's little kids like my guy my four-year-old who might have suffered the most learning loss so far during covid so um this story is coming to us from hetchinger report but it comes out from researchers at the two phd students in fact at the johns hopkins university school of education of course gosh we had so much great information especially about covid out of hopkins but what they've done is they've compiled data, right? So we read a study by McKinsey or a study by named some of the good bellwether, for example. And what they've done is they've gone through studies from a bunch of different countries to look at what learning loss looks like. And I think we've been focused on for a long time at like looking at different demographic groups in terms of whether it's income or it to some extent race, right? Who has suffered the most? And what this is actually saying is it's that K to two group that has suffered the most. And they've suffered the most in terms of mathematics skills, like, you know, early mathematics skills, not just those early language skills. It got me thinking, I don't know how you are as a parent, but I'm far more comfortable with the language stuff with my kiddo. And I like to think that we have pretty good conversations, but boy, when it comes to math, my patience wanes, maybe because my early mathematics education was not so great either. But for all of these reasons, we have cause to focus on these groups of kids because boy, oh boy, there's an abundance of research, as you know, that shows that early learning matters and it matters quite a bit. So this is a really interesting study. I'll point our listeners to Hetchinger Report and the title of this article is, it's an opinion piece, but based in research, younger students were among those most hurt during the pandemic. The one last thing I'll point out, Gerard, is that these researchers still point to tutoring as the best intervention. We had a great conversation last week with Mike Goldstein, who has thought a lot about tutoring, who found the match tutor core, among other things. And we raised the alarm with him saying that, you know, there's a difference between high quality tutoring and tutoring for the sake of tutoring. So um, hoping that as states and districts continue to think about how they're gonna deploy federal funds and as parents think about 
what they should be advocating for. We keep in mind these little ones. We keep in mind pre-literacy and early mathematics skills and think about what are the high quality ways in which we can help kids get up to speed and in fact, get ahead. All right, Gerard. Well, after that, that great reminiscence and story of the week, we are looking forward to having with us. We've got another great professor and historian with us, Raymond Arsenault, the University of South Florida. And he's going to talk to us about any number of things, shed some light on topics that we talk about often on the learning curve, because he's written several prize-winning books on the civil rights movement, including one about freedom writers. So we will be talking with him right after this musical interlude. Welcome back, listeners. And we are with Raymond Arsenault. He is the John Hope Franklin Professor of Southern History at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. He's one of the nation's leading civil rights historians and the author of several acclaimed and prize-winning books, including Freedom Riders, 1961, and The Struggle for Racial Justice from Oxford University Press, which served as the basis for the PBS American Experience documentary called Freedom Riders. In 2011, he appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show in an episode dedicated to the Freedom Riders. Professor Ashino also authored The Sound of Freedom, Marian Anderson, The Lincoln Memorial, and The Concert That Awakened America, and the New York Times notable book, Arthur Ashe, A Life. Professor Arsenault, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we were just talking about the fact that you were on Oprah, which is really cool and <laughs> hard to imagine that you were in one of her last shows over 10 years ago. It makes me feel a little old, seems like yesterday. But of course, we're here to talk about the work that brought you to that show. So it's really opportune that you're on with us now because this year is actually the 60th anniversary of the 1961 Freedom Rides and you are really uh, the authority on this subject. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be an authority on the subject? What led you to study the civil rights movement and particularly this aspect of it? And also because I don't know, I for one am always keen to learn more about women who were really leaders in the civil rights movement. Could you tell us a little bit more about Irene Morgan and what she did in 1944? Well, I think I got into the subject uh, a, a bit indirectly. I actually was working on another book on the Montgomery bus boycott, Rosa Parks and Dr. King and all of that, and with a co-author and we worked on it for a long time, and his name was Mills Thornton. He taught at the University of Michigan. But I think we discovered that when you're writing about something as important as civil rights, often co-authoring doesn't work very well. You want to speak with your own voice. And we had sort of different interests, not really disagreements, but in any event, uh, we both went our separate ways and actually wrote two different books than the one we were going to write. And in researching and writing about the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955-1956, I started dealing with the, sort of the epilogue, which is the Freedom Rides of 1961. And I realized that um, no one had ever written a book about it and that it was absolutely fascinating, actually more fascinating to me than the bus boycott. About that time, one of my mentors from graduate school and from undergraduate actually uh, David Hackett Fisher at Brandeis and James McPherson at Princeton, both Pulitzer Prize winners. They were editing a book series together for Oxford University Press called Pivotal Moments in American History. And what they really were looking for were books that 
could sort of see the return of the narrative with a vengeance, kind of storytelling, um, recovering that art, kind of get back the audience from the journalists uh, after so many years trying to write sophisticated social science history. And so David Fisher came to me and said, I want you to be one of the first authors. Uh, we want somebody, people who are good historians, but also who can write. And so I was flattered and he asked me and I, he said, have you got a pivotal moment for me? Because the series was pivotal moments in American history. I wasn't sure that I did actually at that moment, but I said, I'd like to do a book on the freedom rides. And he said, well, great. And uh, once I got into it, uh, there was no doubt that the freedom rides was a pivotal moment in American history, not only in the civil rights movement, but in, in 20th century America. And I realized early on that I had gotten myself involved in a project that would almost certainly be the most important thing that I would ever work on. And I felt a deep sense of responsibility to carry it through. I think initially, like most historians, I knew that there were 13 original Freedom Riders, John Lewis and 12 others. And I didn't know there were 436 Freedom Riders and there were more than 60 mm -hmm. Freedom Rides. I think if I, I'm not sure I would have had the courage to go on if I had known, because it took me over eight years to write the book. But it was a real labor of love, and I, what I, one of the things I had to do was to track down the Freedom Riders. They had sort of dispersed, and they really weren't as cohesive a group as, say, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee veterans or groups like that, uh, Freedom Summer in 1964. But I found them and uh, actually started working with John Lewis to organize reunions, and it was just the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, to be honest. I just was got so wrapped up in it, and... They were, I think, a little dubious about me at first, but then they adopted me as kind of an honorary freedom rider, and I spent so much time with them, and it's just one of the glories of my life that I've gotten to know so many of these really extraordinary people, maybe ordinary in some senses, but they did extraordinary things, and the, the courage, physical and moral courage that they displayed back in 1961 was just unbelievable, and they signed on for life. They're still freedom riders. They're, they're still troublemakers, uh, making good trouble, <laughs> as John Lewis often says, still getting arrested for various good causes. And so I, I think when my book came out, it, it did establish the freedom ride as clearly one of the major turning points in the civil rights movement and in American history. And that's not the way it was seen before. It was really seen as part of the sort of white noise that happened in the early 1960s. It's kind of blurred with everything else. Because people knew what was coming, you know, the March on Washington and Freedom Summer and the Selwyn and Montgomery March, all those things. And what happened in 1961 seems like just part of the backstory, but it was much more than that. It began the nonviolent direct action phase, which transformed not only the movement, but American politics forever. You know, Professor, I would love for you to still tell us about Irene Morgan, but you bring up something that I'd like to ask you to address, and that is you talk about how it really helped to spark the movement and, and so much that came with it. And one of the noticings here is that even though, for example, Dr. Martin Luther King's message and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's message was about advancing civil rights through nonviolence, what happened was actually horrifying violence across the South. So could you talk a little bit about how we how we square those two things, especially for students sure. today who are studying this, yeah. this no, that, period? That's a, that, that's a very important and a good question. It's often asked with respect to Gandhi in India, nonviolence as a philosophy, as a way of life, more than just a tactic, almost always, if it's done correctly, will 
inspire a reaction. That's part of what it's supposed to do. You want to win over your enemies so that they're no longer enemies, and you have to shame them into it. You have to do what Gandhi called unmerited suffering, which is what the Freedom Riders did. They had this spirit of love and forgiveness, but to make it work, they had to provoke the white supremacists. They didn't want anybody to get hurt or killed, but they knew full well when they got on those buses and essentially dared the Ku Klux Klan to go after them that the Klan probably would. And, of course, it did and tried to burn them to death on a bus in Anniston and beat them savagely in the streets of Birmingham. But, of course, the key is to remain nonviolent yourself, to accentuate the contrast, as they did, between themselves and what they would have said, the white thugs who went after them. So they always dressed like they were going to church, the women in skirts and pantyhose and the men in coats and ties. And even if they didn't normally dress that way, they wanted to dress for the cameras and dress for public opinion. They wanted to show that there was not a moral equivalency between them. And they were disruptors of the civic order. And there was a lot of opposition to them initially because they were sort of lumped with the Klan. Well, the Klan's disrupting the civic order, and so are the freedom riders, of course, for entirely different reasons. And so they had to establish that lack of moral equivalency. And they knew uh, what they were getting into, Not maybe not entirely, but many of those kids, 19, 20 years old, they wrote out their last wills and testaments before they got on the bus because they had a sense they might not be coming back, and they were willing to die. I mean, they put their lives on the line. Uh, that's what, of course, scared their parents and their teachers and their ministers who begged them not to do it. They thought they were making a terrible mistake. But they had a certain wisdom that somebody had to push the edge of the envelope. Someone had to take those risks. And, of course, part of what they were doing was to force the Kennedy administration to decide whether it was going to support constitutional rights or whether it was going to play politics and stay out of it. And so they forced John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, this attorney general, to change dramatically. I mean, they sort of saved them from themselves. I mean, they were cold warriors more interested in the Berlin Wall than they were what happened in Birmingham and Selma. So the Freedom Riders taught them about, really, I think, really the meaning, true meaning of democracy. And in so doing, they, uh, I think they expanded the realm of the possible, really, in American politics, that sometimes you have to take the battle out of the courtroom and into the streets, and you've got to be willing to sacrifice yourself and perhaps even even to die. And I think they won over the American people eventually. So now they're considered to be great heroes, and rightfully so, because they knew something a lot of other people didn't know, that the, the, the traditional methods of the civil rights movement were never going to get us to the promised land. Now, we never got completely to the promised land that they were hoping for, that what they called the beloved community. That's the phrase that John Lewis and Dr. King use so often, because nonviolence did not take over American society, clearly. But they were able to exercise enough political leverage to change the whole course and the timing of the civil rights movement and to become a template, really, for the 60s. I mean, if you ever wondered why the silent generation of the 50s was so different from what happened in the 60s, the Freedom Rides is part of that. I mean, they, they showed the way for the women's movement and the environmental movement and the anti-war movement and the disabled and the gays and lesbians, you name it. Freedom Rides was at the beginning of all of that. You talked about the way people dressed to make a visible distinction between themselves and the Klan or the white thug, as some of them would call the group. So that says a lot about the function of a free press in our democracy and what it played out and how it played out on television. Talk to us more about that aspect of 
civil disobedience because we often just look at them as well-dressed people, not knowing it was actually a tactic and what role the media and TV coverage and the reporters played in it. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, they were staging dramas, really, for the newspapers and for the television cameras, and they knew that they had to uh, sort of seize the spotlight because civil rights, even though it had, you know, appeared on the front pages of newspapers, it, it had never been the big issue. And, of course, it, it becomes that in the early 60s. In fact, that, that's the main reason that the nightly news went from 15 minutes to 30 because of the civil rights movement. But that was a dramatic shift. And one of the difficulties we had in doing the documentary for American Experience, Freedom Riders, was uh, there wasn't as much videotape and eyewitness accounts as there are later we did find more than we thought we would find, and the, the images in the film are, are really dramatic, but that the media was a crucial part of the strategy. Prior to, uh, to the early 1960s, the New York Times didn't even have a full-time person covering the civil rights movement in the South, and that really tells you something. And so the Freedom Rides was you know, on the front page almost every day for months, and it was designed to be that way. I mean, Jim Farmer, the head of CORE, which planned the Freedom Rides, you know, he wanted to draw the white supremacists out to make them show the world how far they were willing to go to protect white supremacy. Uh, so in some senses, Bull Connor, the brutal commissioner of public safety in Birmingham, was his best ally. <laughs> he had to have Bull Connor to show how deep the prejudice went and what they were willing to do all on TV. And, and those incredible images that, that were in newspapers across the world that just shocked people about the burning bus in Aniston and John Lewis and, and Jim Peck nearly beaten to death in the streets of Birmingham. It's one of the things that changed America forever. Earlier, you talked about Dr. King and you mentioned Kennedy, whether it's the president or the attorney general. And they were, you know, of course, they were assassinated as well. And their lives helped to shape what we call the civil rights movement. Even still, historians often consider the Kennedy administration's you know, civil rights record overrated. And some of the students who were driving leaders behind CORE or SNCC and many who joined the Freedom Ride themselves, they were deeply disappointed that Dr. King didn't join them on the bus. So how should teachers and students alike think about the tensions between the Kennedy administration, Dr. King, SNCC, and a younger generation of student leaders in SNCC and CORE? Well, the devil is in the details, I think. The organizations were pushing up against each other, and part of Jim Farmer's motivation to plan the Freedom Rise was that he wanted to become one of the major leaders. He wanted to sort of push into the top echelon, and so there were egos involved, there were organizations involved, but when you deal with, with students, I think you, you have to be truth-telling about it. Um, you don't want to give a, a completely celebratory version of the civil rights movement. You don't want to turn these people into you know, stick figures, cartoon characters, that they're flesh and blood human beings. Although I must say I'm three-quarters of the way through writing a biography of John Lewis right now, and uh, it's hard to find a flaw. <laughs> you know, He's almost too good to be true as a human being. And so they, it's, as a historian, it's, it's not easy to keep any form of detachment. In fact, I think most people who write about this consider themselves to be part of the civil rights movement. I mean, I certainly do. I, I consider my work to be an extension of the Freedom Rides, that uh, they were trying to educate America, and that's what I was trying to do by recovering the Freedom Riders who were lost in history. The Kennedys, uh, 
it's a mixed bag. I mean, there's one book about Kennedy and civil rights called The Bystander. He never really got emotionally engaged, I think, until the last few months of his life. The famous speech he made on, on June 11th, the night Medgar Evers was killed, 1963, shows he had really moved. And, of course, Bobby Kennedy moved much farther later on. But the civil rights movement had to keep educating them. The Freedom Rides wasn't enough. I mean, the next year in Albany, Georgia, the Kennedys were backsliding again, and they had to uh, they had to do it all over again. And they had to do it in Birmingham in 63 and Selma in 64 with even Lyndon Johnson, who was such a big supporter of the Civil Rights Bill, certainly had his, his limits. And the, the movement people had to keep the pressure on. The administrations kept telling them, we need a cooling off period. And uh, Jim Farmer once said, we've been cooling off for 300 years. <laughs> We're not cooling off. We don't want freedom later. We want freedom now. And that's what the essence of the Freedom Rides was all about. Great. Irene Morgan, she's someone who you know a great deal about. Would you like to share a passage from your work about her? Sure. I didn't know how I would end this book. I mean, it's 526 pages of text maybe longer than it needed to be, but I, I wanted to tell the whole story. And I, I begin with Irene Morgan, and then I come back to her at the very end. She was still alive when I was doing the book. She was the woman, of course, like Rosa Parks, who refused to give up her seat on the bus in 1944 and represented herself in court and then went all the way into the Supreme Court. And Thurgood Marshall argued the case, and she won. And it, on paper, at least, it struck down segregation laws for interstate travel. But, of course, the attorneys general and the politicians in the South just ignored it. And it, so you needed you needed a Voting Rights Act later, and you needed uh, another decision in December of 1960, and you needed the Freedom Rides to finally desegregate the buses. But all, all of that took place in Gloucester County of Virginia, in the South Side and the Tidewater. And uh, she was from Baltimore, and she had lost a baby. She was visiting her recuperating with her mother, and she didn't want to give up her seat. She was you know, physically exhausted. And uh, after all of that, after being treated so terribly and being beaten and put in jail, after all of that, uh, after she had a, a, another whole life and she was divorced and remarried and she got a master's degree in New York and everything, she decided at the end of her life to come back to, to Virginia, to live in that same county in Gloucester. And I, I was really stunned by it. And I talked to her children and grandchildren about it, about her kind of mindset. So I end, I really end the book with her coming back. She'd just gotten the Presidential Citizens Medal. And I write this, whether this apparent transformation will prove to be as fundamental or as permanent as the citation, citation they, they had on her medal, implies remains an open question. But even the most skeptical among us should take some comfort from Irene Kirkaldi. Her married name was Morgan Kirkaldi recent decision to live out her days in Gloucester. Since January 2004, she and her daughter have shared a home just down the road from the bus stop where she was once denied simple justice. Surrounded by friends and family members who see her as a righteous symbol of redemption and promise, she lives peacefully, secure in the knowledge that her life, like the lives of the Freedom Riders who came after her, made a difference. For her, at least, the long-awaited day of Jubilee has arrived. Since then, of course, she has died. But I was happy that I could sort of complete the circle there and to bring her back at the end because she was one of those American heroes who was truly lost. 
for so long, and she never wanted the spotlight. It's only then near the end of her life that she was rediscovered and honored and given medals and all of that. But it was never about the hoopla for her. It was about simple justice. Well, and what a beautiful passage and so fitting to end with talking about Irene Morgan when one of the first things we talked about is sort of like what it is that students need to know more about, about this period in time. And certainly she seems like somebody who we don't learn enough about in our schools. Professor Raven Arsenault, thank you so much for your time today and for schooling us on this topic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's been my pleasure, too. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for inviting me. Listeners, my tweet of the week is from Kevin P. Chavis, someone I referenced earlier, who's a president at Stride Incorporated. His tweet is from October 1st. It says, Howard Fuller is the most significant education leader of the last 50 years. And that is my tweet. I feel like I should have some comment, but um, enough said. I think is the only thing to say to that. And shout out to Dr. Fuller. Happy belated birthday to Dr. Fuller, who I think was one of our very first guests on the show, maybe after you, Gerard. I can't remember. All right, then, Gerard, next week. Sorry, listeners, but we might be back to talking about COVID, but hopefully a lot more than that. We're going to be speaking with Robin Lake. She is the director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education, which is a nonpartisan research and policy analysis organization developing transformative evidence-based solutions for K-12 public education. But bottom line, here's the thing. Robin Lake, just a really smart person, producing a lot of really, really cool stuff worth our time, worth everybody's time, and her stuff is certainly worth a read. So looking forward to being with Robin next week. Gerard, until then, are you traveling or are you staying home for a little while? You have feet in Charlottesville? Yep, I have feet in Charlottesville for the next few weeks. Awesome. Well, fantastic. Looking forward to being with you next week. And until then, have a great week. Go take that nap you've been talking about. Oh, you can rest assured. (laughs) Literally. All right. Take care. Bye.